0: Well, I hope that uh, Dr. Peter McAuliffe can live up to that incredible announcement. But truly, I mean, there's two people that I've wanted to have come, uh, Dr. Peter McAuliffe, and just the incredible, heroic stand he has taken, and, uh, you know, these people that are this bold? Their medical licenses put on the line. Lots of stuff. It's uh, very dangerous times. And the other one is after the first year. We'd really like to get uh, Dr. Robert Malone. These two individuals that have been doing such a great job. So we're so excited about that. About 10 days away on that Wednesday night, the 14th, and um, just going to be a very special night. Well, uh, as we think about this um, season with the Lord and with the, you know, joy to the world. Title of our message tonight is The Secret of Joy. And how is joy something that you can have flow from your life? And we have this incredible document, even in our own country, that says the pursuit of happiness is something that we want to do. But the elusiveness of pursuing happiness, the elusiveness of joy in people's lives is specifically because it cannot be attained in a direct Pursuit. I just want joy, so therefore I'm going to grab joy. I want happiness, therefore I'm just going to grab happiness. Both happiness and which is a lesser version, really based upon your circumstances. You have a good day, you have a bad day. It's very outward in its orientation to your happiness, ups and downs, and all over the place. But the difference of joy is that joy is something that is a byproduct of the pursuit. Of a relationship with the Lord, and a byproduct just begins to take place in your life as you begin to pursue him and there 's three pa- uh, phases in this chapter one of First John, make your way to first John if you don 't have a Bible, raise your hand, and Lynn will get you a, a, a bible she 's back there with an arm load we 're going to stand in a couple of minutes and read chapter One of First John. This is a part of our anchored series. We only um, have 10 verses in this chapter, but they are so insightful for you and I. There are three things that we wanna learn in our time tonight here, and that is about spiritual intimacy to experience joy, and spiritual consistency and spiritual honesty. And these three things, when they begin to happen in the child of God's heart and life, joy can either increase in your life or joy is diminished in your life based upon these three things. So if you're here tonight, we're not going to have a show of hands because nobody wants to raise their hands and say, I have no joy, I'm a Grinch. Right? So we're just going to assume you guys are the super spiritual people that have been seeking God and you have just like bubbling, overflowing joy. Now, you saw Garrett. He might have a little bit of joy going on, right? The beautiful thing about joy is that this quality can be there through the thick and thin, the good and the bad and the ugly of life. You see, sorrow, which is the opposite end of the spectrum, right? Sorrow or joy. The Bible says that Jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And yet he was the ultimate joy giver and had joy in his own heart. And I wanna share with you in this study because I think sometimes when you hear about happiness or you hear about joy, immediately you wanna discount it because you know what? You're going through some hard times right now. Relationally, you feel out of sorts. Maybe you're in a conflict with someone. Maybe this is a time of real grief or sorrow or loss in your life. And yet, I want you to know that These two are not as far apart as you think because I have been in the midst of deep sorrow and mingled in was the joy of the Lord. So God can bring these things supernaturally together in our souls throughout our journey and our walk with him, through the dark valleys or the mountaintop experiences, through drawing on these resources of spiritual intimacy, spiritual consistency, and spiritual honesty, that John the Apostle unpacks this because, you know, he is called the beloved disciple. How do we know that? Because he called himself the beloved disciple all the way through the Gospel of John. Never names himself, just talks about and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who is that? That would be moi, right? That's, and the disciple that outran Peter. Who did that? that? That would be me. Only a couple of apostles racing to the empty tomb. John writing in his Gospel that I beat Peter to the tomb. The old... Uh, Large fishermen could not out sprint me. But the beautiful thing about John is, John is the mystic among them. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, John comes along and he comes from a whole different angle. His writing is different, how God uses his personality and speaks to him through his spirit. And so we want to tap into that as we see the secret of joy in John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. Stand with me. Let's read these 10 verses and let them wash over us before we dig in and learn some valuable lessons for our lives. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that we, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Notice why he writes this letter, chapter 1, verse 4, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Father, we ask that your spirit would speak to us. Open our hearts, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things. Lord, bring your joy to our souls through intimacy and fellowship with you. Through Walking in your light. And Lord, being honest with ourselves, with you and those around us. Lord, do your work in our hearts now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. You know, if you uh, think about those who are in the psychology world, they look at joy or happiness, usually happiness, from two perspectives, because they're not coming from a spiritual perspective, which we're going to be coming from, but they they have two approaches, and usually a mixture of the two, though some people are hardcore, separate in that. There's the hedonic happiness is achieved through experiences, pleasure, and enjoyment. We get the word hedonism from that. It's just the full-blown eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow you die, man. It's FOMO, it's fear of missing out, so just go for it. Live like a hog and die like a dog. Cram as much in as you can. Now, before I came to Christ, that's the way I lived. Like, full tilt. I'll try anything. I have no no in my vocabulary. It's like I somehow have to drown out the noise of my own soul that knows I'm not right with the universe. So there's the hedonic hedonic approach. Now, this hedonism, which is probably the American ideal, right? We say it this way. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. So... If you're pursuing pleasure that way, that's that's happiness, right? We even have happy hour because there should be one day, one hour in the day to have a happy hour. <laughs> but there's also the eudonic monic happiness, which is achieved through the pursuit of virtue or meaning or purpose or doing good in the world and trying to basically the world doesn't say it this way, but resist some of the hedonistic mentality and try to do good, follow virtue. Now, some of these things came out of the 4th century B.C. in the Greek philosophers. Aristotle believed that the second uh, this uh, eudonymy is actually uh, another form of the word, he, he thought this was best because he looked at the hedonism and he said, you know, it, it creates slaves of people to live in that kind of pursuit of just you know whatever they want to do he he noticed the slavery he noticed the uh, bondage we would say the addiction the addicts right the addicts are pursuing the drugs or the whatever their addiction might be they get happiness from gambling there's shopaholics there's gamblers there's drug addicts there's alcoholics there's people that are addicted to romance so they just go from one relationship and ride the way for about 3 or 4 months and as it begins to normalize then they jump into another relationship and they want to ride the wave of the romantic. They're addicted to that. They're addicted to these experiences of pleasure. The goal is in this lifestyle is to maximize pleasure and to diminish pain, which I think all of us want to minimize as much pain as possible. It's not like we're sadistic. And the other thing is, is that from a Christian perspective, there's nothing wrong with the pleasures that God has created for us as long as we don't become in bondage to those things. Is there anything more beautiful than a wonderful meal? A wonderful meal with your family or your favorite dessert, whatever it might be. These things are pleasures, the small pleasures in life that you can enjoy. The physical pleasures of intimacy, of a husband and a wife. These are pleasures that the Lord blesses and says, hey, man, this is great for you. But the other pursuit that um, Aristotle pointed out was really pursuing virtue. Now, virtue is moral excellence, that is, if I begin to pursue morality to be good, to do good, I actually wake up in the morning and feel better about myself. Anybody know what I mean? You know what it is to wake up in the morning and not be so proud of yourself last night? If you don't remember what happened last night, I always know, no, I'm, I don't even remember what happened last night, I know it's gonna be bad. If I can't remember it, <laughs> my friends are gonna tell me, as they did one time, you took the trash can of Thule. If you've ever been to a Waptuli party, everybody brings whatever crazy whiskey they have. You put Fruit Punch into a clean kitchen trash can, and you just dump it in there. Right? That's a Waptuli party, Idaho, Idaho hillbilly style. It's always bright red, so after a party in the winter, in snow, outside the house, wherever the Waptuli party is, there's big red splotches where people threw up. You could see it all over in the white snow outside. Sorry to be so graphic, just letting you know. That when they told me, you're carrying the Waptuli (laughs) trash, and you won't let anybody have it, (laughs) right? I said, I don't remember a thing. (laughs) No wonder you don't remember a thing. So, but the pursuit of virtue to do good, there were times that I wanted to clean up my life and not be that guy. And I would try. I would make a vow that it would last 45 minutes. And I would be right back at it. Because you see, though you might have a desire to pursue a life that is more virtuous, you lack the power. Because whoever sins is a slave of sin, and I was addicted to sin. So when John comes along and he tells us, you know, I'm going to write to you guys. Just imagine you're his group of friends. I want to write you a letter. And the thing that I'm really, what's really on my heart for you tonight is I really want you to have fullness of joy. I really want you to be full of joy. And that's a beautiful thing. It's not something that you've probably never received a letter like that. This letter is all about you having joy and me telling you how to get it. But he tells us here, in this spiritual pursuit of happiness, unlike hedonism, unlike only pursuing moral virtue, and don't get me wrong, there are good people that I know that are not saved. They pursue good things. They're not really addicted to the kind of things I uh, was into and yet their life will never achieve the fullness of joy that you can as a child of God. Because this fullness of joy, in this inner spring of, it's beyond happiness, but this sense that I'm right with God, I'm loved by God, I'm walking with God, and I'm a vessel of God, there's nothing that can touch that. There's no unsaved person that can experience the level of that joy. That's what the Lord offers us. He said, I came into this world that you might have life and that more abundantly. But the thief, the devil, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to ruin everything about your life. He wants to ruin every relationship. He wants to destroy your children. He wants to destroy your character. He wants to destroy your body. He he is a destroyer. He is a liar and a destroyer. So we first look at spiritual intimacy. In verse 1, he tells us in verse 1 through 3... He wants us to, you to know that he handled Jesus. He looked on Jesus. Look at all the words that he uses about physical touch and physical contact in verses one through three. He says, "We have heard with our ears. We have seen with our eyes. We looked upon Him. Our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Who is Jesus? The life was manifested or revealed, and we have seen. We bear witness. We declare to you, was with the Father and was revealed or manifested to us. We have seen and heard. It's, he's repeating himself. Why is he doing that? Because there was this Gnostic doctrine that was coming along that was saying that Jesus was not uh, God incarnate. That the there was a, this Spirit would come and go upon him, and he, he wants them to know he's very physical. You remember when Jesus rose from the dead? He, he would pop in and out of rooms where the uh, disciples were and the doors were locked. Talk about freak you out, right? You're looking this way and you're looking, <laughs> there's Jesus right, <laughs> right next to you. Whoa, Lord, I wish you'd give us a little warning. And he would show up, but he would show up physically. And they said in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, if you ever want to, you know, the, the, the Jehovah witnesses that come to your door, they do not believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. But in their own Bible, they have the New World Translation. The New World Translation is a way for them to diminish the deity of Christ. So they want to take away his deity. They don't believe that he rose from the dead physically. And, but even in their own translation, I, I like to take them to their own New World Translation in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24 and mess with their heads a little bit. And when Jesus showed up in the room, they said, the disciples said, oh, it's a ghost. He goes, I'm not a ghost. He said, can you touch a ghost? He said, give me some broiled fish. Give me some honeycomb. I'll I'll have a meal. I'll eat with you. Ghosts don't eat. I haven't hung out with any that have. I don't know if you have. But he wanted to show them that he was physical. Thomas said he would not believe unless he stuck his fingers in the the holes in Jesus' hands in his hand in the side where the spear went through his rib cage. And so when he shows up, he goes, hey, Thomas, I'm here. Last Sunday night, you said you were going to touch me, so here, here you go. And he says, my Lord and my God. And he believes in that moment. And Jesus says, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. He said, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. You see, here John the Apostle is telling us about his incredible witness, about the physical experience that he had with Jesus. And truly this fellowship was with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, in verse 3. But you and I have never seen him. You've never seen him with your eyes. I don't know if you had a crazy supernatural conversion. Maybe you had some kind of vision. I have some friends. So see some friends from Iran. That's how God broke into their world with these crazy visions in Iran. Because you no know, Bibles were allowed, so God's doing, you know, crazy things to save them. Is there kind of a buzz? I can hear a buzz. Kind of like a, almost a feedback. It just could be anointing. I'm not sure. <laughs> but it does seem like a little reverb or something. Anyway, a little distracting. So you and I, though, have never seen him. And my conversion was quite dramatic, quite supernatural. In my home, all by myself, the Lord spoke to me. I didn't go to church, hanging out with Christians, nothing like that. God just broke into my world, and his presence filled this living room where I lived. And I fell to my knees, and I confessed my sin, and I started walking with Jesus. And it was very dramatic, but I still never physically saw him. He spoke to me in a still small voice. And God has spoken to me from... Time to time, in various ways, usually He speaks to me all through His word, but there are times that God just speaks to me, and it's a way that it's not an audible voice, it's just a clear thought that I know came outside of this space-time continuum. And it was just downloaded into my brain, and he just spoke to my heart, and it was very real. And this experience of walking with him and this spiritual intimacy that John's talking about, seeing him, hearing him, touching him, handling him, being with him, eating where he ate, sleeping where he slept, walking with him, seeing him minister and heal, all these things. And he said, this is, I'm inviting you, he writes this letter to them, our fellowship was with the Father who sent the Son and the Son, Jesus Christ, and with us, those who are Believers. So he wants us to know, as he then states in verse 4, these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The fullness of joy is going to come in proportion to your intimacy with the Father, with the Son, and with His people. That's how joy wells up. Okay? The time that you spend in God's Word, the time you spend in prayer, the sp- time you spend in worshiping the Lord in your car with the music, and time you hear Bible study, and time that You're in small groups. However it is that you fellowship and you talk about the things of the Lord, you're investing. It's like watering a garden. The more you water it, the greener the garden becomes. And so you're increasing your joy. And the opposite is true. If you grow distant in your fellowship with God, you're not reading the Word very much, you're not going to church very much, you don't really hang out with Christians, you'll find that your joy diminishes. Now, I want you to distinguish between two different things. Relationship. You'll say, I know Jesus. Great, you have a relationship. Fellowship is different. It means just sharing life together. You're just sharing life all the time together. That's what fellowship is. Now, I could share with you that, hey, Thanksgiving has went by. Christmas is on the way. And I could say, do you have a relationship with your family? You go, yes, I was born of a man and a woman. (laughs) How are you doing in that fellowship with them? How are you sharing life? Those are two different things, aren't they? You have some children that have come from your own body. You poured your life out for them. You have a relationship with them, and they call you once every two years. How's the fellowship? Right? So relationship, just because you know Jesus, and you know the Father who sent Jesus, and you know God's people, you have relationship with them, but is that, we would say, our Relationship has grown distant, right? I have a bad habit when I move from one place to another, basically because it was the way I grew up. Every six months I moved, every six months I moved. I had a hard once I move, kind of those people that I build a relationship with back there, I just, you know, I don't call them, I don't write them, I don't I don't have much of a relationship that way. So the fellowship is different. Fellowship is your sharing life. Now, we can do this even though Jesus told Thomas, blessed are those. Thomas, you see, therefore you believe, but blessed are those who have not seen and believe. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 1.8, whom having not seen, you love. How many of you love Jesus and you've never seen him with your physical eyes? That's me. Though you now, you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy. What, what do we have going on because we believe in him and have fellowship with him? We have joy inexpressible and full of glory. I have this joy from the time that I met the Lord. Now, this joy, if you call it you know, this uh, tank of joy, either is overflowing as I invest in my fellowship and share life with him, or it diminishes and I lack joy because I haven't been hanging out with Jesus. Right? That's just the human experience. And depending on where you're at in your life right now, you'll see people that are radiant in their walk with the Lord. And you know they're hanging out with Jesus, right? They're just radiant with the joy of the Lord. And you hang out with them and just, it's like contagious. You're like, wow, I wish I was that excited about God. Well, if you read the word and spend time with him and worship him and hang out with God's people, so often over the 30 years of counseling people, people will tell me how distant they feel from God. And there's no joy in their life. And they don't, da, 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 And I just ask them a couple of simple things about their fellowship with them. They, they knew Jesus. They believed Jesus died on the cross for his sins and rose from the dead. So they, they thought relationship and fellowship were the same thing. So I would say, so how much do you read your Bible? Oh, I rarely read my Bible. I might pick it up once every two or three months. How often do you go to the church? Mm, I don't know. Three or four times a year? But I pray every day. I'm like, well, that's good. I mean, that's better than none. One, one out of three. And yet they wonder why they are not filled with joy like the Christians they know that are fellowship with God. They not only have a relationship with them, but they hang out with Jesus every day. They read the word every day. They're praying every day. I talked to a young lady. She was about 23 years old. She said, I grew up pretty much as a uh, CEO Christian, you know what a CEO is, Christian, uh, Christmas Easter only, that's a CEO, Christmas Easter only, CEO, and, and she said, uh, but I made a determination uh, about three months ago, and that is to come to church every Sunday, she said, this is the first time I've ever done it in my life, and she said, my life has changed. In three months, just going to church, that's four times a month, she said, my life has changed. She still wasn't reading her Bible daily, but just to go to church and hang out with other people that were filled with joy changed her life. I said, imagine if you actually started having church each day with you and Jesus alone by having devotions, reading God's word, praying, hanging out with other Christians. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, 11, you will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. No matter what people are fumbling about, trying to put things into their body to have happiness. The greatest quality of life you will ever experience is the intimate fellowship with God. And that's true in your human relationships, right? If you've been married a long time, you have a relationship, I'm married, look at I got a ring. But how's your fellowship, <laughs> right, in your marriage? Those are two different things. Most marriages are surviving, not thriving, if you hang out with married couples, and you'll always know, because when a young couple asks that old married couple, hey, we just got engaged, they moan and groan and tell you what a bad decision you're making. When both my kids got engaged, they said, Dad, we're gonna stop. And then separately, they didn't even hear each other's conversation. Dad, we're gonna stop telling people we're engaged. I said, why? They said, because when we tell them, old people that are married are, try to just talk us out of getting married. And said, we're not, wearing. I said, well, you're obviously talking to the wrong people. The only way to have a marriage that is thriving is to invest in it, right, to hang out, to spend time together. You're talking, you're listening, there's, you know, body, soul, and spirit, that's emotional intimacy, that's physical intimacy, and that's spiritual intimacy, and when you have all three going on, you can maintain a high quality of life where there's joy in your marriage. I've been married 36 years, but from our first date, Tammy and I have been together 40 years. So don't tell me that, like, well, you don't know. 40 years is quite a stint, you guys. That's quite a haul, right? And so, oh, by the way, I forgot an announcement. It's probably a bad segue from a beautiful marriage to a terrible political thing. But I forgot an announcement. Hey, I wanted to put up that, thank you. The Acorn put this article out this week. With Jeff Garrell and Janice Parvin winning their respective races, the Ventura County Board of Supervisors will begin 2023 with a well-defined conservative majority for the first time in four decades. We all got to be a part of that, you guys. So we kick the political thing to the curb and get back to my lovely wife. So, for 40 years, in having relationship with each other, that the joy that is there. Jesus rebuked the church of Ephesus. He said, you've left your first love. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love. And after love, that we're talking about fellowship is love, relationship. He said, then it's joy. Then it's peace. You know, when you lose the love, you lose the joy, you lose the peace. It's a downward spiral from relationship, from fellowship. That's what what happens in a child of God's life. Well, just to Kind of fast forward, I, I put a couple of things in here just because I, I don't want to run off with joy and not have it hooked to the cart of sorrow because those things are go hand in hand in our life. tells us in Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Man, we, we're going to have times, you guys, of real sorrow in life because when you love, it hurts when you lose those loved ones. And it hurts when you see them go through hard things. And it's painful, but it's a, it's a sorrow mixed with joy because the Lord's with you in it and through it. One Wednesday night, I got a call at 545. I was preparing. I was in my study at the church. We're going to do Wednesday night service, and I get a call at 545, and somebody's hysterical, and they said, Pastor Rick. Now, my uh, elder in our church, his name was Gordon Boyle, but he went on to be my assistant for 20-plus uh, years. And I said, Gordon's son, Jake, just drowned at Ryrie Reservoir. And Jake was 17, involved with our youth group, great kid, and he had just drowned at Ryrie. Now, him and his dad the week before, Gordon, Gordon worked for the sheriff's department, but he is actually the diver to go find bodies that were in the water. So he got the call, too, and he's off duty. I said, I told some elders, you guys just have a prayer meeting. I'm going to Ryrie Reservoir. We got there, and they were just pulling Jake out of, the, out of the water. Jake was dead, 17 years old. And we went to the hospital. The whole church in, emptied into the hospital, you know, people everywhere with guitars, play, worshiping. We kind of took over the hospital. Security came and asked me to take him out, tell him to get out. I said, I'm not telling him to get out. We're, just, we're, we're, we're seeking Jesus, man. We're taking over the hospital. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> but the next day... They had to make the decision. They donated his body parts and they unplugged Jake. We're gonna have the funeral and I mean, you don't even have to say I just sat with Gordon and Roxanne and we just cried, we just, we just cried. I had no words. We had the funeral and, and Gordon and Roxanne said we don't know what to do. Most of our family is not believers. And so they said we're just an hour before the service. We're just going to go in the back room. We'll invite all the family that wants to come. And we're just going to worship Jesus for an hour. Because we don't know what to do except praise God. In the midst of this mingling of sorrow of Jake who, who went home to be with Jesus. He loved Jesus. He was with the Lord. And the joy that they're going to see him again, the joy that their 17-year-old boy, all the, the hope and the promise that's in a young man, he's with the Lord. He just, he just went straight to heaven and left us all behind to pay the bills. Whoa! The nerve of such a young man. But in the midst of it, the sorrow of it, there was joy. There was joy. There was hope in the Lord. So I sat by my mom's bedside, in May and she breathed her last and I'm with my brother and I'm with my sister and we wanted to be there when she just breathed her last to usher her right into heaven. And the hospice nurse had told us, you know, at the end she said, we usually don't tell people this but you guys seem to be very uh, faith oriented. But when your mom begins to guppy, she's very close. And we're like, guppy? I said right before they go, their mouth begins to do this like they're a guppy lap. And they're about ready to go. She began to do that, and Scotty and my sister Shauna, we got close, and she just breathed their last. There was a, a mom, a, a shell of the woman that was unconquerable. <laughs> my mom of her favorite lines to tell me when things got hard. I'm a tough old broad, nothing's going to get me down. She truly was but she loved Jesus. When I sit with my brother's ashes in my lap going to the church to do his funeral, dead at the age of 53, part of me died that day because I realized I'm never going to see my brother again until I get to heaven. And he's right with Jesus too. And I had this joy in the midst of sorrow. It was this mingled, grieving, blubbering mess with joy. Hurricane Ian hit, our, hit the town, Cape Coral, where Tammy and I have two condos because we had done property for about 25 years at the town we were in and we had saved up this nest egg and so we had bought two condos in Florida while well, it was cheap before everybody took over the world over there. And our, our condos were right in the path of Ian. So now they're gutted, waited, waiting because of the water damage and... They did tests through all the condos, the 120 units that are there, and they have uh, petroleum products and feces from all of the water surge in all of the condos, so they have to clean them all up. And we got this news, and we're just like in the midst of it. it's like, Lord, it's yours. And the Lord spoke to our heart, said, I'm going to take care of it. The Lord spoke to Tammy's heart, said, I dried out the Red Sea, I can dry out your little condos, Tammy, it's okay. The Lord knows how to comfort our hearts. So you're going to have this sorrow and loss and sickness and various things, but it's the Lord's presence. Can you imagine? imagine, to me, I don't know how people live without that hope in the Lord. Well, I do know because I lived that way a long time. It's just you got to drown it, right? You've got to kill the pain. You do it through self-medication. I'm going to drink myself into a stupor and then do it all over again tomorrow or drugs or whatever I can get my hands on. Somehow I have to kill the pain inside of me because I don't know what to do with it. I don't know where to take it. When it gets really bad, somebody sticks a gun in their mouth and blows their head off because they can't take it anymore. But the hope that the Lord brings, but there's this joy and sorrow that is mixed together. Let's skip ahead uh, to the second, which is spiritual consistency. So number one, if you want to have joy, you're going to have this incredible intimacy with the Lord and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and His people. But there's going to be spiritual consistency because in verse 5 through 7, it says, This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say, notice, if we say, and then we walk differently. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So when there becomes an inconsistency in my life, you know what happens? It diminishes the joy in my life. I know the Lord. I have fellowship with him, but because now I know that the Lord is light and him is no darkness, he's holy and he wants me to follow him, he wants me to walk with him, and I say that I do, but the Lord says, but Rick, you and I know if you're walking in darkness, maybe nobody at church knows it, maybe nobody in your family knows it, but you're walking in darkness. You know you're not in a place that I want you to be. right? So our, when our profession of our walk with God. Our profession, our mouth speaks, but our lifestyle, which is the walk of our life, are inconsistent. Have you noticed in your life when you know you should be doing right and you're walking wrong and you're walking contrary to the Lord? At dimin- you just, you have no joy. You're just like, you want to know the most miserable person on the planet? A backslidden Christian. Because he knows too much about God's word to be happy in the world. And then when he goes to church, he's got too much of the world in him to be happy in church. Now church and worship and messages are boring to him because the things he's dabbling in, the darkness has blunted, blunted the sensitivity of the work of the Spirit in his life. So church now sucks. Church is no different. You suck. I don't know if I've ever said that from the pulpit. I say it. You suck. You suck. Because what's happened is the world has invaded your space and the darkness, once again, it blunts the sensitivity to the spirit of God, what he's wanting to say to you. Because all you want to do is be out in the world. When I I went through a time I got mad at God right after I got saved. And I went back into the world, plunged right back into my old lifestyle. And my friends told me, we don't want to hang out with you anymore after a couple of months. I said, what's the problem? They said, before you were a Christian, you were a lot of fun. Now we get drunk or you get high and you mope and you go, I'm a Christian and now I'm drunk. I'm a Christian and now I'm high. We don't want to hang out with you anymore. You were happy before. You're a drag now. Find some new friends. (laughs) I'm like, no, I think I'll just go back to church and get into the light. (laughs) Right? I have to get back into the light because I'm in the darkness. And when you're in the dark, you know, you're you're just making a mess of your life. I was at this golf course and I had been having fellowship with this Christian, and he was the assistant groundskeeper of the golf course. But then I was backslidden, and I'm at the golf course getting hammered with another friend on the back nine. And here he comes, and I, I got a beer in my hand, you know, a driver in my hand, other hand, and I'm like walking around the tree because I can see him coming. I'm hiding behind this tree. And my friend, who's a total heathen dog, he, does, he goes, what are you doing? I said, you're like dancing around that tree. Which oh, wrong? Nothing, nothing. He's like... Are you concerned with those people? I mean, you're a. Why are you hiding from that guy? Trying to. I'm like, how is it that I'm 20 years old and acting like a little kid? Because I was walking in the dark, and I knew I was wrong. And when I saw a Christian, immediately the conviction of where I should have been was thrown into my face. But this is how we got right. Maybe you're here, and you've lost your joy because you know what? Right now, dude. Do this. Right? I'm sorry I told you you suck. (laughs) But if you don't want to suck anymore, read verse 7. But if we walk in the light, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Isn't that amazing? Right? As soon as I come back into the light, I come back into fellowship with him, and he cleanses me from all of my sins. That's why right. his love never fails. Right? I can stumble, I can fall. He's perfect, I'm not. The ups and downs of life, the heartaches of life, the struggles of life, all the stuff that you go through. And thirdly, the, the spiritual honesty. You see, some people, it's not a, they're really not aware that they're in the dark. They just begin to lie to themselves. And you see, when you begin to lie to yourself, then you lie to God, and then you lie to everybody else around you, right? If you've ever been in that cycle. I always talk to you guys, and I've, I've come from such a dark place, and God's transformed my life. So, and so. I'm like, I'm sure you're good people. <laughs> but there are people that are lying to themselves and lying to others, and sadly, lying to God. Spiritual honesty is a prerequisite to enjoy the fullness of joy. Intimacy with God, walking in the light, And being honest with yourself, honest with God, honest with others, spiritual honesty in verse 8 through 10. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If you say that you are not a sinner, this is the root, it's singular, sin, the root. The Bible teaches that you, at your very moment of conception, were a fallen sinful person. You are not, hopefully, HIV positive, but you are S-I-N positive at conception. Because sin is called the Adamic sin, and through the seed of a man, when the conception happens, there is a genetic sin component, a spiritual component, a physical component. Why do we physically die? Because the wages of sin is death. We're all gonna die. You are a sinful person. This is called the depravity of man. It means that sin has touched every dimension of my being from my, from my conception. Now, a, a, an infant cannot, you know, outwardly sin, so to speak, in that regard, in the womb, but they're a sinner from the beginning. Now, if you disbelieve this, because we live in a generation that believes people are good and some bad things have happened to them, that's not the case. People are sinful and fallen, therefore they manifest. Do you know that you, you are not a sinner because you sin? You sin because you're a sinner. Those are reverse. Do you get that? Okay. And if you don't believe me, I tell people, if you do not believe in the depravity of man or the original sin, original sin of man, you go to our nursery with two and three-year-olds. Your children they're clubbing each other. I mean, it's, it's fortunate that they only weigh 25 pounds because they would kill everybody because they're crazy. And, and they're totally self-centered. It's me, mine, I'm gonna club. I'm gonna pull out there. Do you have to teach, have any of you ever had to teach your kids to lie? I'm gonna teach you how to lie. No, they figure it out innately. They got it going on. To steal, to take, to hit, to strike, to be violent. You teach them. What do you teach them? To be honest, to tell the truth, to be kind, to share. Why do you have to share all that with them? Because they are fallen creatures. They are sinners. So if you say that you have no sin, I talk to people. And, well, I've never sinned. Did you just say that? Well, you know, I, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. Oh, must we always do this? Let me, let me just ask your wife. She'll give it up, right? She'll tell the truth. So we deceive. I deceive myself when I deny the fallen nature that's inside of me. Even as a saved person, I still have a fallen nature inside of me. That's not eradicated until I go to heaven. So that's why there's tension. The spirit of God's working in me, and I still have my old fallen nature, Rick Brown. Romans 3:23 says for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3:10 there is none righteous, no not one. But if we confess our sins, this is how we can get right. And confess means to say the same thing. It doesn't simply mean to say it out loud, which that's good, but it means to agree with God that what I'm doing is sinful. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I acknowledge my sins, sins the fruit of the sin in my life, I am a sinful person, saved by the grace of God, now redeemed and righteous in His sight, but... Now when I sin, I confess my sins and he's faithful and just. I agree with God that that thought's wrong. That unforgiveness of mine is wrong. That lust of mine is wrong. That envy is wrong. That covetousness of wanting what that person has, that's wrong. Lord, I confess that. I I agree with you that it's sinful. And in that moment that I agree with him, I'm no longer lying to myself and lying to him and lying to everybody else. I'm actually confessing, Lord, you know what? You're right. And what you say is sin is, is sin. And so I agree with you and I need you to forgive me, and he will. He'll not only forgive me, but he'll cleanse me, wash me clean from all unrighteousness. And lastly, in verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is a scary place to be, that I say, you know what? I haven't sinned, and I'm not a sinner. God's a liar. God doesn't know what he's saying. So, you see, I went from lying to myself to blaming God that he's the liar. God, you're the liar, this adulterous affair that you're involved with, that's not sin. That's not sin. God, you're a liar to call that sin. This addiction that's controlling my life, that's not, a, and you know, that's, that's not wrong. Lord, you're the liar. You see, if I, if I am in darkness and I'm deceived, I'm self-deceived, and I'm lying to myself and I'm lying to others and I'm lying to God, pretty soon I'm just going to turn around and say, God, you are the liar. You're the liar, because I don't want to change. And man in his hubris, or his bloated pride. Imagine, this three pounds of gray matter I have in my brain that I'm smarter than the God of the universe, right? I'm gonna stand before God one day, come right into heaven, say, you're the liar. I'm righteous, and I'm good. I don't think that's going to, how it's gonna go down. How about you? Everybody that has any interaction with any glorious being, angelic being, the Lord Jesus, they fall on their face and say, I think I'm a dead man, (laughs) right, because of the holiness I just experienced. Peter, when he saw Jesus do the miracle with the fish, he falls on his knees and says, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Because what happened in that moment that he experienced a touch of heaven and a glimpse of heaven, he realized how sinful he was. That's what happens. That's what happens when you come into the presence of God's people. One day at, the, at a golf tournament, it was a celebrity golf tournament, this, golf, this uh, pro golf player comes up to the, throws on the brakes of his golf cart, jumps out and takes his club and throws it out into the pond, and he tells the guy that's on the cart with him, I hate that Billy Graham's guts. He was on the celebrity tour with him, and they were, and, and he goes, well, what did he say to you? He said, he never said one word. But his presence that he was there as a man of God, so convicted him that it enraged the man that he threw his golf club into the pond. You see, even, even when people get around other Christians, I w- when I used to get around other Christians, I felt extremely uncomfortable when I was not a Christian. And it wasn't that they were doing anything to me. It wasn't act- they weren't acting like holier than that, where they were loving me and just being kind people. But I knew they were right with God, and innately, you know what? I knew I was not right with God. And I'm like, can we please not hang out with Christians? <laughs> because it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> because as long as I hang out with my heathen dogs, we're all in the same, we're all in the same pig pen. Romans three four says, "Let God be true, but every man a liar." God's not the liar. God's true, but men, as soon as they can learn to talk, male and female, learn how to lie, and call God the liar. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. When God's word comes into me, I want it to find its home inside of me so I'm not fighting with it, saying that God's wrong and I'm right. I want it to dwell richly inside of me. The secret of joy is a byproduct. You notice he just says, hey, if you have great fellowship with God and his people and you'll walk in the light and you'll be honest with God about your condition, you're going to have joy. And you take any one of those three components away and you're going to diminish in your joy. You're going to have less joy. So the fullness of joy that John wants us to have is accessible, but it's a byproduct of those three things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Pray that you would do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. You are so good. Lord, I just pray right now. for the intimacy of fellowship with you. I pray, Lord, these, these things that maybe are just keeping us from experiencing this fullness of joy. Lord, whatever your spirit is speaking to each and every heart, I just pray that you would bring them to that place of, of confessing to you, to say the same thing and realize that they want this overflowing joy. Lord, would you bring that work of your spirit Lord, to our hearts tonight, the three services tomorrow, all weekend long, Lord, that we would experience exactly what John's intent and purpose was in writing, to have this beautiful fullness of joy. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.